Hey, yo, artists and musicians. Who, us? Yeah, do you want your own vinyl records? Yeah, but I can't order a thousand of them. Or wait like a year to get them. Yeah, we're going on tour in two months. Check out our friends lathecuts.com. They'll make you vinyl singles in quantities as small as 50 copies and as quickly as three or four weeks. Get out of here. You heard me right. All their pricing is a la carte and they can help you pick a package that fits your budget. Okay, who we talk to about this? You need to email my buddy Mike. His address is lathecuts at yahoo.com. And if you mention low profile, you'll get a 10% overrun on your order. So if I order 50 records? Mike's going to send you 55. If I order 75, I guess you will get 82 and a half? Something like that. Remember, you got to mention low profile to get that deal, and it won't be around forever. What was that address again? That's lathecuts at yahoo.com. Custom-made records in small quantities. Mention low profile to get a 10% overrun on your order. And emailing now. What's up, fam? This is Markley Morrison, and you're listening to Low Profile. Our featured guest today is the producer and composer Jim O'Rourke, who spoke to us from his home in rural Japan, where he's lived for the past decade and a half. If you don't know him by name, chances are you're familiar with some of his work. He's got credits working with Sonic Youth, Joanna Newsom, Stereolab, Wilco, Gaster Del Sol as well as movie soundtracks like School of Rock and even Grizzly Man. My co-host today is Dylan Shearer, who, like me, was turned on to a whole world of sounds through Jam O'Rourke. There's a lot to unpack in today's show, but before I play you the interview, here's Sean O'Hagan from the High Llamas and Stereo Lab to say a few words about Jim. Okay, this is Sean O'Hagan talking about Jim O'Rourke. When I think back to the, those days in the 90s when... I was working with Jim and he was coming to the UK and staying with me and it was it's remarkable because the guy's a visionary and I had that time with him and it was amazing. He worked on Lama's Records, Stereo Lab Records and I seemed to be around an awful lot. We discussed music, he was a voracious consumer of music. He'd be working on a, another collaboration. But then he would be forcing me to listen to Presence by Led Zeppelin. I didn't listen to Led Zeppelin, but Jim would say, you've got to listen to this. Or you've got to listen to Supertramp, as well as Vahi and you know, all the rest of it. I mean, the guy, he he did, he did wasn't judgmental. He was an absolute voracious consumer and lover. Uh, he, he, he just lived in a musical world and always has and I think to this day it is um, music and films are his absolute love um, it was a joy knowing him I would love to meet him again at some point I may be dressed as a doctor Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for thinking of me. Yeah. yeah. I, I reckon you're busy as usual. What, what have you been working on this week? Uh, I'm mixing a record for my friend, Max Gustafson, oh, which is okay. like, a, so like a jazz big band thing. So it oh. has about 40 people playing on it. And of course, as soon as everyone gets going into the stratosphere, everyone's off mic because they're probably moving around in ecstasy. <laughs> uh huh. So, that's, so, yeah. It's probably so fun to chase around on the boards then. <laughs> yeah, fun is fun isn't the operable work. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing that. Mostly doing things for friends. <laughs> 
what did your parents listen to that stuck with you when you were small? My parents didn't listen to music. The only music they listened to was the Irish Hour on either Saturday morning or Sunday morning, the radio show. Otherwise, they, my mother didn't listen to music at all. My father had a few like Elvis records, mm -hmm. things from that. Otherwise, they, they weren't interested. There was no music in the house at all, except for what I was listening to. Okay, so that that wasn't inherited then. No, very unused. No music in my family at all. They're from Ireland. Did you live in Ireland when you were little? I spent time there as a kid, but yeah, they're from Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, I I didn't full on live in Ireland, but I spent enough time there as a kid to uh, for it that I don't think at the time an influence, but eventually, you know, and the fact that they never really became American. I mean, legally they did, but they never really adopted any Americanisms. Yeah, there was very little culture in the house, frankly, outside of, you know, Sunday morning. With the Irish hour and, and uh, all the other things that happen on Sunday that the Irish must do. <laughs> <laughs> did you go to church and everything? Oh, yeah, I was an altar boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I tried to leave it behind. That's the best anyone can do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so were you playing church music at all? I read that you started playing uh, guitar at age six. Yeah, and... I mean, I started, yeah, I got like an acoustic guitar and I took lessons, I believe. Uh, yeah, I took lessons. But I don't think no. I, did, I I was never good at keyboard, so I wasn't involved in any of the the uh, grade school. God, they, like, I, I, now that you mentioned, I can't remember if there was any. I don't think that I don't think until high school. I don't think I was playing in any school-related music. I must have been though. But I don't remember. I know in high school there was concert band at the boys' school and there was orchestra at the girls' school, and I was in both of those. Gotcha. Playing, playing double bass in the orchestra and I played uh, percussion uh, and like marimba in the concert band. And then there was a jazz band in high school, so I played guitar and bass in the jazz band as well. What warped your mind from uh, at, at an early age to? Uh to sort of eschew pop music uh, and what was going well, I on in that. I, I didn't eschew pop music. I think probably because I, there wasn't much in the house. I had no context. So ah. everything everything I got, I got into was just by going to the library. Uh -huh. And if I liked something, I would always cross-reference it. It was, you know, very easy. You know, it's like something as simple as like, well, I like this record. It's on the ECM. What's, what else is on ECM? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, at that time, uh, you know, it was, you know, you'd walk into a record store and there'd be Frank Zappa posters on the wall or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, what people now considered weird music was not really looked upon that way. At the time, I mean, yeah. It was still part of the, it was still kind of part of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Maybe not as successful, but, you know, most things were still being released on major labels, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't like the stuff wasn't, available i mean when i was a kid even the, you know the this is you know the 70s so you know i mean the real shift didn't really happen until like 82 or so a rise of like you know like things like rock trade you know this this beginning of a real division of a, like a things that are existing outside of the mainstream right labels is like a culture factory yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah so so it wasn't in the 70s it wasn't difficult to find things that people would now consider strange Mm -hmm. um, I didn't think it was strange. I just, you know, whatever uh, appealed to me, I would, I would then cross-reference it to something else, and it was the same way with films. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. basically the library, just by going to the library, and you know, there was good radio in Chicago at the time too. You know? Yeah, you know, and and the, the most important thing probably is is, uh, and I think it's countrywide was the interlibrary loan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with, yeah, I, I took advantage of that. I remember one thing I did for almost a whole year is there was the list on the inside of, I think it's Breakout. Yeah, the Mothers of Invention, yeah. yeah there's a huge list that's, 
that is in there of all the you know all the people you know here are the people you should check out and i checked out everybody on the list and if there wasn't anything in my library i could get it sent there you know so you know and now it's so much easier it is back in the 90s i was using your lists to find music oftentimes i remember oh. this list of like minimalist top 10 or something like that mm. alan lick did one too and it was uh yeah. yeah i just was like i gotta hear all this stuff yeah, at that time, some of those are probably hard to get. Yeah. Are, are you uh, contacting us from the steam room? This is the steam room, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's an abstract concept, but as, as concrete as it gets, this is it. Yeah. Can, you, can you maybe describe the steam room, what that is for the listener? Well, it's just where I, where, wherever I have my studio. Okay. Um, it's just you know my it's just my studio where'd that it's come not, from though you've been using that name for um, that decades actually came from, that actually came from this men's steam room <laughs> <laughs> i forget when i found this but it was still when i lived with my parents and so this has been like just just hangs over the door of wherever my studio has been since I dropped the men's part. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> Did you ever use men's in the the album credits? No, no, okay. no. no. <laughs> right. Actually, uh, I actually totally forgot about. I mean, I've been here for quite a long time, and I I actually forgot that that's been hanging there since until you mentioned that. Funny. So, um, I somewhat naively, um, Ooh. I had mistakenly thought that you hadn't put out a whole lot of music in the last decade or so and well uh, i mean not physically no right yeah like the last thing i could go and buy at the record store was simple songs simple yeah. songs it's like seven years ago yeah okay, yeah. okay. probably eight by the time this comes out <laughs> and and then there was there's been a, a few seven one or two Three or four, two or three cents. That you can buy uh, in the states. Yeah, I wonder. I, yeah, I think they're all out of print now. They're all, they're probably all out of print now. I mean, not not like song records. Right, but, uh, right. There's a piece called Six Views of a Secret." It's a one-track album, about forty minutes. Definitely reminded me of some of the work you were doing on Migo in the like late '90s, early '80s. Oh, yeah. Uh, I sort of remember that one. There's a lot of organ in that one, isn't there? A lot of organ. Yeah, and, definitely. I mean, it's all, you know, I mean, fake is not the right word, but I mean, it's all, that's all synthetic. like, from, you know, programming. Yeah. Yeah, it's all synthetic. Yeah, it's no, nothing real being played. <laughs> you... And I'm not even playing it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing much ensemble work these days? No, very little. Uh, only band or anything like that that I play in is uh, Bashi's and that that only happens maybe two or three times a year. And then the group Eiko and I have with Tatsisa Yamamoto, we only play maybe once a year. Otherwise, no. No, I mean, I, since I moved out of Tokyo, I'm, I'm basically just in this room every day. Oh, you're out of Tokyo now? Yeah, I moved out of Tokyo about seven years ago. Oh, okay. So I live, I live up, I live up in the mountains huh. in, uh, in the middle of the country. Oh, cool. Mount Fuji, right up this morning to my left. What's your, uh, 
what's like kind of your daytime routine out of the out of the steam room like, what, what is there to do where you live oh to do yeah there's plenty to do in here so sure <laughs> <laughs> basically i wake up we have coffee and smoke a few cigarettes and then uh i come in here and aiko goes to her studio and we work usually until 10 at night and then i cook and we watch a few movies and then start over i mean that's basically work every day about 12, 12, 14 hours a day. You, you bring some Chicago flavor to your kitchen? No. No. <laughs> no, no. Fully transitioned, yeah. Put the past behind you. Yeah, well, I've been a vegetarian since I was like 13, so mm-hmm. Chicago cuisine, except for Lou Malnati's pizza, which I would like to eat one more time. Uh-huh. Um, outside of that, yeah, there's not no real Chicago cuisine that I really uh, ate much after a certain age, actually. Sure. I, I remember places when I was younger. I remember Jeans uh, and Jude's, which was a, a hot dog slash cocaine dispensary uh, <laughs> next to the, next to the Thirsty Whale. Thirsty Whale was like this heavy metal club in Chicago in the seventies and early eighties. Are you still doing film scoring? We we just we just uh, watched one from few years back and um but we we kind of wanted to pick your brain about that whole process that gig uh, no i i actually don't get i haven't gotten many offers to do film scores i actually haven't done that many well we were watching uh, the creeping garden the documentary about slime did you score that did you compose that while watching the film are you playing live to the like neil young no, did for dead I, man I, I, no, it's that one of the directors of the of the film was a, a film critic that, that specializes in Japanese films, and he was in Japan around the time I moved. Named ja- a guy named Jasper Sharp. So I so he was just like a pal. So when okay. they were making that film, he just he asked if I could would make some music for it, and I, it was that was more of a situation where I understood what the film was about. He talked to me about it. And then I basically made stuff and sent it to them, and they put it where they wanted. It was more a situation like that. Okay. It had the effect of turning it from a kind of a PBS style documentary to giving it the feel of like a horror film. Yeah, I mean that's what he wanted. He wanted, you know, we talked about like face, like Saul Bass's Phase Four, and and the tone he was going for. So uh, it wasn't like a regular sort of like uh, film scoring job where you know I got take you know you know rushes or whatever. And it was basically. Sent them, sent them stuff to use, and they, they used it where they wanted. Okay. What about the Grizzly Man uh, soundtrack? How'd you get connected Grizzly to that? Man, that? That actually, that was two days in a recording studio in uh, in Berkeley, hmm. and Herzog was there, and basically we'd sit in the room and talk with Herzog, and he'd show us scenes, and then they'd hit record, and we'd, we'd go. I mean, except for one thing, it was all improvised, you know. Hmm. And uh, that was great, though. That I'm was sure. great. Yeah. And yeah, it was really great. It was super great. <laughs> he seems like he's a uh, potentially a very silly guy. Yes, he's very funny. He's yeah. very, very funny. Yeah, he's insanely funny. <laughs> and he's very nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that all happened because of Henry Kaiser. Oh. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, he's part of that uh, too, right? Yeah, he was sort of like the producer of the session because he knew. 
uh, Richard Thompson. And Henry realized that, uh, this is one of the many nice things he's done for me, he realized that the cost of buying me a flight would, would be the same as paying like somebody to play the out there in the Bay Area because he knew I would do it for free. Of course, <laughs> you know, I didn't need any money for that. So Henry said, yeah, would you, you know, would you come out here and do this? And I was like, I'll pay to do that. <laughs> so, so that was Henry's idea that because he knew I could, I could move between instruments and be just sort of like a utility player. Mm-hmm. So um, that was, I'm very grateful for that. But I mean, that, that session was led by, by, uh, by Mr. Herzog and, and Mr. Thompson. But yeah, it was basically improvised. Wow. I think there's a video somewhere online. I know it's there's a documentary about the making of the soundtrack. Yeah, uh, which is really well made. But there's a thing where Mr. Thompson and I are doing a. a I'm on piano and he's on guitar and you know it's basically that was just right. Awesome. Pre- prepared piano. Uh, yeah, situation. yeah. Situation. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to do prepared piano with your guitar? Sure. Yeah. Let's do that. Herzog, obviously, like a legend that you're going to jump at the chance to work with in any way, shape, or form. Um, Similarly, John Fahey, you kind of had a had a lot uh, to do with his latter. Well, I I was I didn't have. I mean, there was other people who were who were really more responsible for that, like Byron Coley. And Jeff Hunt, who ran Cable Elements, I just mm. sort of helped. You did help, yeah. That's how I found <laughs> out about him at a young age. It was through you, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if you might know something about Fahey that that we don't, or if, <laughs> if sure. there's any, well, if you can isolate a, a memory that you might not have shared. I, I mean, that's a tough one mm-hmm. because uh, I sort of on purpose never got super close to him. Mm. I sort of needed to be uh, sort of outside of, <laughs> of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially at that time, I mean, he really had you no, know, he didn't really didn't have much interest in playing guitar. Mm. And, yeah. And I think that's why at that time, I was not a person who would say, oh, when you played this piece, did you think of this or, or you know, uh-huh. but what if it was this? I mean, I kind of didn't, I just didn't, wouldn't talk with him like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah, um, was that a dominant fourth on Voice of the Turtle? You know, just like yeah, yeah, yeah. technical I mean, I, I, shit that, yeah. I saw it like when, when there would be shows where we'd be playing together or we'd be in situations where other people would talk to him. I mean, it was constantly stuff like that. Yeah. Like, like guitar talk, and he really hated it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he would, I mean, at, at least at that point in his life, uh, he really, I mean, because he'd be really, he'd be really forthright about it, uh, uh, of his opinions of their, of their questions. Mm-hmm. So I, I, so it's hard for me to, to say, whether I actually know anything about him that, I mean, that the layman or the casual fan might not, yeah. So you didn't, you didn't, you you guys didn't bro down too much, is what you're saying? No, I mean, but we got. I mean, he he seemed to like me because he he never turned on me. <laughs> <laughs> so he seemed to like me. Okay, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was actually very nice to me, actually. And usually the times we met, it was usually for work, you know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't really like the. Yeah. Beach picnic. Although, I mean, there was because he, at one point, uh, for, I don't know what recording, but he was sort of living in my apartment for a little while. Oh. I mean, so, uh, but I think just a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of gave him his. Uh, I mean, he kind of, I mean, in a way, he kind of demands he he's going to have his space, no matter where he is. So you either allow that and get out of the way, or you know, you you're a person who doesn't notice that and asks about the dominant fourth chord on this track. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It was kind of like like you kind of had to choose. You, 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 and, and in that case, you, you actually encounter, you know, it's, it's like, it's like quantum physics. You know, once you know, John Fahey becomes that John Fahey, depending on what perspective you, you, you observe him from, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know there's all sorts of, it's all the possibilities and it collapses into the Fahey that you observe, you know, mm-hmm. so. How'd so, you... Yeah, I've never, I've never said that, but yeah, John Fahey was a bit like quantum physics. Do you remember how you got <laughs> hip to his? Um, I mean, it was just around. I mean, yeah. I didn't really get into him till later, mm-hmm. maybe in college, but I had heard records. You know, they were. I mean, they were popular records. You know, maybe in the record store. Yeah. I don't know when, I don't know when I really, I probably didn't really get into him until I sort of conflated what he was doing in my, in my mind. I didn't conflate it. I later sort of like, oh, well, you know, in a way, this is not unlike, you know, Phil Neblock or Tony Conrad or what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And once I started looking at his stuff that way, I had a much more, uh, much more interest in it because other people like Leo Kotke and all these guys were technically better guitar players and probably would appeal to me more as a kid mm-hmm. that stuff no longer was appealing to me at all although i know it's excellent uh, but once i started looking at phase stuff from that perspective it became much more especially like a record like america oh yeah trail but i was just wondering if you ever thought of writing a book no not really because i really hate writing <laughs> ah yeah i really hate doing emails writing and just uh-huh. writing is the one thing i really don't like doing are you similar with lyrics i've only written lyrics i've only written lyrics when i had to mm-hmm. what do you mean you had to like like it was going to come out of you and you couldn't stop it or like oh, because, because it's part of whatever that thing i'm making is yeah. that's one of the elements mm-hmm. um, outside of that i've never written lyrics did that start uh when you were in gaster del sol was that i didn't write i didn't write any of the lyrics in gaster that was all that was that's all, all david. david okay yeah 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 even on the camouflage didn't did you not write a song on there uh, Mouth Canyon. Well, I, wrote, I mean, not I mean, even sorry, lyrics. Lyrics. No, oh, lyrics. Okay, so you didn't write no, the lyrics. No. Okay. No. The lyrics are all day. Okay. I had no interest, and in, I had never written lyrics, so I don't think I even made a comment. On them. Yeah, I'm, yeah, those are all day. So that started then with, uh, like the Drag City solo material, basically. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. That's the genesis. Yeah, basically. Eureka was fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just those three. It's just Eureka and Significance and, and Simple Songs. Uh-huh. Well. Oh, and I wrote some lyrics for the Loose Fur records. Oh, right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But, Can't forget about that. Yeah, outside, yeah, yeah, and outside of that, I've never written lyrics. No. Yeah, not, not in the plans. 
No, no, that's 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 well over. Yeah, unless you have to. <laughs> no, there's no more have have to. Yeah, okay. I'm glad to that. So the the sinister nature of a lot of those lyrics, like, kind of sneak up on you, though. I think that was was that was that kind of the point. No, I, I mean, I I I think they're funny. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too many people can remember your name Always walking you down memory lane These things I say might seem to offend But not half as much as I'd like to intend Cause listening to you reminds me of a motor's endless drone the so damn lucky. <laughs> I am. I don't think of them as sinister at all. I just think they're, they're funny. <laughs> I know. I know it's maybe not a sense of humor most people share, so they might be seen differently. It's. A, it's. I guess it's people, a bit. But... It's a bit dark. Dark humor. Dark humor, yeah. for sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess. To um, someone. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I've I've seen darker. Oh sure, you know? absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I guess it falls into that. Yeah, but in general, yeah, I, I mean, I was. So uh, yeah, I, another. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you would ever consider sorry, writing right? songs for others to sing and perform i have i have but i didn't write the lyrics mm-hmm. i've never written lyrics for anyone else i've written songs for other people um, but uh not lyrics well i mean in a way but with, with loose fur if jeff sings the song because usually the lyrics we, we're with loose fur is basically a lot of the lyrics were were done by jeff and i together right. and it was basically like just trying to make the other was basically just trying to make the other person laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even in Lucifer, there was two or three songs that never ended up on the record because I went too far for Jeff in the, in the, in the, in the black humor department. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Jeff's, Jeff's like, I'm not singing this, mm-hmm. which makes sense. <laughs> he was on the sidewalk on my block the other day. Yeah, it's a fact check, it's sorry, Charlie, honey, he's back from L.A. So, son, you better turn around. Yeah, Christ is on his way across town. Was getting tired of hanging around. Yeah, he's back, Jack, smoking crack, find him. How did you and uh, and Jeff Tweedy start hanging out? There was a festival in Chicago called Noise Pop where they would invite people to the festival and ask them what they wanted to do, like mm-hmm. do a collaboration with this person, whatever. And Jeff wanted to do something with me. And so I, just, I got this call from either the Noise Pop people or straight from Jeff. And, and then... I said, okay, why not? And he came I, He came over to my house and basically I just was playing records for hours. And then we decided to, I don't remember, then I think went over to the loft and we just started writing stuff. And, and I decided uh, it would be easier if my friend Glenn would come and play drums. Mm. Then it would, it would make everything much easier. And then, of course, what happened then is as already famous story. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a giant 12 or 18 LP box that just came out about that story. Oh, wow. so, yeah. Uh, 
yeah, that's so. Uh, so I mean, that's how it happened. That's really how it happened. I guess Jeff had heard bad timing uh, before meeting me, and I mean, from what Jeff has told me, it was basically he thought that was a record that combined interests of outs outside of normal music, but wasn't academic and he hadn't really heard anything that had that kind of tenor to it. So mm -hmm. he was interested in meeting me. So that, I mean, that's really how it happened. He was asked by a festival to do something and he decided he wanted to do a show with me. And that the songs we wrote for that show, uh, I think like the next week we went into, uh, um, what was the name of that studio? Went to a studio that was the, that my roommate, the guy, was an engineer at, and we just recorded the record in a couple days, the first Loose Fur record. But then that, I think right around that time, then afterwards is when all the mixing and of uh, Yankee Hotel started, and I and I think what happened was we were ready to put out the Loose Fur record right away, but. The management of Wilco or something wanted us to wait until the Wilco album came out. And at that time, I was like, oh, okay, that'll be like six months or something. But it ended up being like two years. Oh, wow. Before all so you guys know, were it, sitting on that for a while. Yeah, yeah. The Loose Bird record was recorded like two years before it came out. Wow. Huh. It was recorded, it was recorded before Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Wow. That's, yeah. That, or that's like while they, were, while they were recording it. Simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Because Glenn wasn't wasn't in Yankee wasn't in Wilco then. Right. And so yeah, and you you mostly you did you did your knob tweaking <laughs> board work for that that record, which is phenomenal stuff. Like that mm -hmm. I I had not heard I had not heard mixing like that um, on like a commercial record. You had this similar role working with Joanna Newsom, but by proxy, Van Dyke Parks did work on that uh, record that was, as well. And did you guys cross paths? No, on that no. record, because I know you're a nerd for Van Dyke. No, no, I I've only met Van Dyke briefly for like maybe ten seconds hmm. in Japan about fifteen years ago. No, the, the the all the recording was already done when I came into the picture, ah. and it was. I mean, I mean, it's sort of complicated because one of the things, you know, I mean, if someone wanted a good mix, they can get a great engineer. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like I'm a great engineer. You know, they can get Mr. Albini. Or, or other great engineers. My thing is that there's a certain thing that I do when I mix, and it's 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 almost it's a kind of half somewhere between mixing and producing because I, I make editorial decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and you know I can understand some people don't like that, but that's what I do, and if that's what you want, I can do it. Yeah, you're you the know. Guy. I mean, if you like the particular way that I did. So with that, with the Joanna record, it was sort of a strange situation because that's kind of what I was being brought in for. But that also means I would be making decisions about cutting parts of the orchestration. Right. Did... Which, which in that case put me in a very awkward position. Mm. Right. You're you're messing, base, I, for lack of a better word, you're messing with, you know, Van Dyke yeah. Parks' new baby. <laughs> And yeah, it exactly. seems like that's like a high pressure situation to be in. It was a little bit unfair. I mean, it was, it was, I was, it was kind of like, it was kind of like good cop, bad cop. Uh -huh. Not, yeah. Okay. It really was kind, of, it was kind of that. And it's understandable. And I was never upset about it. But it really kind of was that. That was really what was going on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't intimidated because I was going to make that record sound what I thought it should sound like. And if that's not what she wanted, that's fine. But it is what she wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She knew. <laughs> yeah, usually I don't let people in the room. With, like, I don't let the band or whoever in the room when I mix. If you really want what you think I can do, 
you have to let me do it, you know. Or if you have ideas about what you want to sound like, then okay, then I'll engineer for you. But it's they're really two different things. Kind of, I've got to get into like completely different modes of working for those, you know. Yeah, but I wasn't intimidated by the uh, the, uh, the Van Dyke thing. I mean, it was exciting, of course, but yeah, uh, yeah, things, things had to be done. Yeah, got to got to get to work. Mm-hmm. I was curious how how did you uh, get involved with the Judy Sill uh, mixing stuff that you did? I love that. I'm a- I got contacted by this guy. I forget his name now. He was, I mean, he was sort of like the executive producer of that CD set that eventually came out. And I don't know how he knew of me or what. I don't know. I don't know how he knew that I was a Judy Sill fan because at that time, you know, she really, really didn't know who she was. He was like only, you know, only like record collector friends or someone like with that like that would know so i don't know how he found out uh, or or decided to ask me but he contacted me and asked me to do it and i said of course yeah and at that time that was actually mixed in my kitchen oh, nice. <laughs> yeah or the, the steam room in yeah, your kitchen. I, had, I had very little equipment at the time i mean i've always wished i could remix that but i mean i could i still have funds but um yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that that came to pass. Huh. And you know, the funny thing is, it was recorded at Michael Nesmith's studio. Oh, cool! And, wow. And, and this is the real crazy thing. People, a lot of people overlook the liner notes. The basics were recorded by uh, what's his name? The American Paul McCartney passed away a few years ago. Emmett Rhodes. Emmett Rhodes, exactly. Ah, uh, yeah. That was a shot in the bass, dark. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, the bass, the bass tracks were recorded by Emmett Rhodes. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to work on a record with Emmett Rhodes and Michael Nesmith. God, right that's a cool yeah. gig, man. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I love I love Michael Nesmith. Yeah, me too. So, yeah, that, that one just came right out of the blue. And I have no idea how the guy knew I was a genius. you hear a crystalline cry shake in the quiet sky echoing far echoing wide was it just a silent goodbye from a heart bound in time tempered and fine Listener questions that can sure. shoot. Um, so, in no particular order, uh, Franklin wants to know: Do you still have the plushie from the cover of Halfway to a Three Way? Absolutely, he sleeps by my side every night. You got Aww. the little froggy. <laughs> and if I'm leaving home overnight, he goes with me, and and Chompers as well. Hmm. They've right. never, they've, I've not been out of their sight in almost 40 years wow okay <laughs> mitchell wants to know what was it like doing the u.s maple stuff oh uh, that was great they were they were amazing mm-hmm. uh, that was their their first record was actually the first rock real rock band that i'd ever recorded hmm. i mean i was mostly recording like quieter th- pop or or jazz or, or whatever 
you know, up till then as an engineer. Um, so, um, they were amazing band. I think Al was, I mean, everyone in the band was brilliant. I mean, I think in, I mean, I could say everyone in the band was underrated, but Pat was amazing. The drummer mm-hmm. and Al, the depth of Al's thinking about what he was doing vocally was really impressive. I'm still impressed to this day, the depth of his thinking and the work he put into it. Uh, I think they were absolutely brilliant. I still, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm, I never use the P word, but I'm, I'm happy that I got to do those first two records. musicianship get in the way of what they were trying to do so uh, I still have enormous respect for them uh, I'm I'm glad I didn't screw up their first two records they hired the I, right I guy well I, don't really, <laughs> I mean at that level it's not really like hiring you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh yeah, I, th- I think they were fantastic and sadly still underrated. Mm-hmm. People were still listening to them. Mike Wilson sent us uh, probably a good hour's worth of questions. So, Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, okay. Good good ones. Well, I mean, how, how, yeah. how do you picture your own legacy at this point? That's the, uh, that's the easy one. <laughs> no, I don't think I have one. Okay. Yeah. Fair. here's one that i know you've probably come across before it's about your music um and accessibility for streaming our friend april wants to know why like your migo music isn't available to stream and well it is right i i I found some on uh Bandcamp. so basically basically Mm -hmm. i just don't do spotify i didn't do apple and those until the, the sound quality was good enough. Ah, okay. I mean, app, the business model of Apple Music isn't that great, but it's not, you know. The thing is, I get to see this because, like, some things that I've done, like, you know, like Sonic Youth stuff or the Wilco stuff, I have no right to say where any of that stuff should be, mm-hmm. you know. Right. So, As a participant. So yeah, I was a participant. I don't have that right to say, no. Uh, but because that stuff is up there, I've seen, you know, what you get from Apple, and I've seen, you know, so I know. Apple thinks not that bad. To me, that was just, it, the sound quality's got to come up. And it did, and then it was fine. based as your primary yeah. composition tool yeah. early-ish adapter of uh playing the computer before an audience yeah 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 i i i i, I took the brunt of the, of the resistance early on i mean other people did but yeah there was there was definitely resistance at first i saw some of that when i saw you in la oh really yeah. In L.A. with uh, Oval? I want to say it was Red Crayola, wow. but I can't yeah, remember. True. Nobukazu Takamura? Oh! Oh, yeah, no, that was Nobukazu Takamura. Yeah, yeah, that was that tour, too. That's one I think I saw, yeah. You, you're going to tour Europe, North America, <laughs> Antarctica? Yeah. No. 
What would it take to get you on tour? I don't understand the appeal of that. Yeah. I'd much rather just sit at home and work. (laughs) (laughs) I just really don't understand the appeal of it. I mean, I have, I've done one thing recently in in Paris, uh, but that was like a a thing that I had written for orchestra and then like live multi-track sound. Oh, wow. And that was, that was, I did, I went for that because it was at the GRM, which was my like college year's dream was to do something at the GRM. So that was like, okay. That's um, worth showing up for. Yeah. And plus my partner, April, she had a European tour and uh, she doesn't speak English very well. So uh, I basically was her, tra- I went as a translator. And then she was like, "Okay, you and this this will happen. These things are happening at the same time. Okay, but uh, outside in terms of touring, no, I, I don't want to do that." You've been in Japan since what year? Around it's either two thousand five or two thousand six. Oh, it's been about seventeen years. Do you think in Japanese now? I do. Yes. I don't speak English very often. Yeah, I was wondering. I have a weekly thing with a few friends it's like a programming thing that we do every week and since i've been doing that my english has actually gotten better hmm. uh, because i do at least i do at least speak two hours a week hmm. because of, of this uh, uh zoom meeting i do with friends from the uk but before that actually my english was actually it would be it was a bit mangled the grammar is different yeah uh, the, the sentence structure is different so i would occasionally speak in English with the sentence structure of Japanese. But yeah, I, I speak enough now a week that it's, it's okay. Are you collaborating with others remotely? Like yeah. these days? Is yeah. That... Most, yeah. Most of that stuff is like from, with really old friends, like even going back to like the eighties, you know? Yeah, are, is are you still uh, buddies with any of the uh, illusion of safety? Um, I hear from most of the people like sort of went off, uh, like the people who were involved when when I was involved. Most of them have been off the map for a long time. I mean, at least to me, you know, they 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 stopped doing music. I still hear from Dan once in a while. I mean, I think Dan isn't even doing it very much anymore. Mm-hmm. Was that the first um, proper it, like ensemble you were in, like band style? No, no. no. But uh, uh, it was it was the first thing that I was in that I didn't start. That I wasn't like something I was mm. starting. Mm-hmm. It was the first like joining someone else's project. Do you, do you ever seek out new collaborators or is there anybody that you would be interested in collaborating with? The closest, you know what, the closest that I've ever come to doing that was with Francois Bonnet, hmm. uh, 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 Castle Yeager. Because hmm. um, he had one or two records out and I thought they were great. And I remember telling Peter Rayberg, I was like, oh, this guy's great. And so Peter checked him out, and then he started putting his stuff out on Amigo. And I think I just wrote to him, and it ended up that he actually worked at the GRM, and now he's the boss at the GRM. Hmm. But that was the closest. I actually wrote him a fan letter. and uh, But it wasn't like, let's do something. It was, like, it was more like I, I, helped, I helped set up some shows for him in Japan, hmm. and he came, and we just went to my studio and did stuff. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, I, I've never written anyone, maybe when I was a stupid kid, I did. But like when I was a, yeah, when I was a stupid kid, like in my like teenage and early 20s, I know. It's funny because actually Francois sent me just the other day, he found in the archives of the GRM, he found the letter that I had written to GRM in 1990, asking if I could go there. <laughs> And luckily, it wasn't as embarrassing as I feared it would be. But it would, I mean, 
it did have things like I was like, I'm a composer. Like, oh god, <laughs> oh god, it was really Ouch. cringy. But it wasn't, it wasn't as cringy as as I expected it to be. So yeah, usually no, you it's almost always their friends first. Hmm. Yeah. 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 What about dead people? Who would you bring back? <laughs> <laughs> Who would I bring back? There's a lot of people I'd bring back. Don't, I mean, but but I, bring, I wouldn't bring them back to do something with them. I'd bring them back so they could do more. Uh, right, yeah, right, know. yeah. I mean, I'd be happy to, you know, help them, you know. Yeah. You yeah. dig them up I mean, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I noticed that, like, from 10 years ago, I mean, this is just a personal thing because of, like, the first kind of person I am, and I understand that and still loves me the wrong way. I noticed about 10 years ago, this kind of wave of like young people doing collaborations, you know, uh, with, with elder statesmen. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. Lady. And it wouldn't, like, it would be a collaboration. It's like, it's like, you know, their name had to be on the cover with them. It's like, can't you just help them? Mm-hmm. Can't you just be an, an, a person who helps them? Yeah. Why, why do you have, I, I just feel it, it rubs me. I mean, it'd be like me putting my name on the Tony Conrad record on the cover, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. it feels exploitative it's, kind it's of, just, just, yeah, yeah, it just feels wrong to me. Yeah. It really feels wrong to me. And I know, I know it, it's a different world than what it was in the, when I was their age. I know that mm-hmm. I just, it, it kind of rubs me the wrong. I, I just think you, you should give back. You know, mm-hmm. you just should give back, and and that that should be enough for you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm I'm doing it now. I mean, most a lot most of my time uh, is is like like restoring archives of of like composers who I really admire that have passed away. Mm-hmm. And I've been working with Roland Kane's daughter now for a couple of years. You know, basically restoring his entire album, which has never been most of never been released. You know, and I'm not I'm oh, not wow. taking any. You know, I'm not taking any money. You're not that. putting your name it, on the cover. <laughs> well, I mean, on the credits it sure. says yeah. you know that I restored the audio, but like even to take money for something like that just feels wrong to me because he's someone I respect and that's and and I know his stuff mm-hmm. really well. You know, and, and helping restore Tony Conrad stuff. He was like, "Oh, that's mm-hmm. all you sh- you should do that." Yeah, and I, I first do that. And so we have that to look forward to. There's a lot to look forward to. Yeah, and I'm more than happy to to not go on tour and instead sit in here and restore Alfred Rolling Kane recordings. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a for me a much better use of whatever time I have left. You know. Well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I for one really appreciate you doing that. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's you know, it's, people, it's good people, work. It's important work. People did it before, and that's how I got to find out about things. Yeah. Exactly. So I I have to I have to contribute back. Yeah, I have. Well, um, I I think I think we did it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to talk to you again real soon, Jim. Yeah, this has been I, lovely. I, I hope- Oh, yeah, thank you so much for thinking of me for this. Hmm. Yeah, and I hope it, I hope it was I hope it wasn't boring. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> well, have a great evening. Yeah, yeah, you too. You have a lovely afternoon, Jim. I I will try. <laughs> Been a pleasure. Thanks again. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Lots of love. Be careful. Okay. Be safe. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. This has been the 70th episode of Low Profile, featuring the producer and composer Jim O'Rourke. Thanks to my co-host Dylan Shearer and to Lonnie Morrison for the illustration that accompanies today's episode. If you'd like to hear the unedited two-hour version of this interview, it's available for Patreon supporters. That's at patreon.com slash lowprofile. 
You can find a link on this episode's page at lowprofilepodcast.com, where you'll also find links to Jim's music. Low Profile is produced by me, Mark Lee Morrison, in Olympia, Washington, and receives in-kind support from local businesses San Francisco Street Bakery, Schwartz's Deli, Old School Pizzeria, Rainy Day Records, and Schurler Easy Premium Shitty American Lager from Three Magnets Brewing Company. Thanks to Forrest Edwards for help with music post-production. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.